I extend Christian greetings to each one. Good to be together and definitely been inspired as some of the thoughts. Um, a little phrase, God is always right. That's a, that's a tremendous phrase. <clears throat> God is always right. It doesn't matter so much what I think. It doesn't actually matter what I think. It matters what God thinks. God is always right. Appreciate it too, the thoughts of what are we following Jesus for? As our brother was speaking on that, it uh, right before what he read there, it says, The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, Perceive ye how ye prevail nothing. Behold, the whole world is gone after him. You know, actually, they had nothing to worry about. The reason they were concerned, reason that it was such a issue to them, is because they were thinking on terms of uh, people following people for the sake of their interest. They had nothing to worry about because when Jesus started preaching the cross, the crowds left them. The crowds left them. And so that that's what makes the manger scene, for the most part, not a big issue. But if it, if it was the cross, and if we knew really what it meant, it would be a different story. It's easy to follow a little baby or admire a baby in a manger. But I think it's good to admire and follow the Lord Jesus Christ and spend our life observing his life and being awed and admired by it. I actually admire any man or woman who have made a positive and lasting contribution to life. I think Jesus should be the forerunner of all of those. But, you know, I think it's okay to admire a man or woman who made a positive and lasting contribution to life. For some of those, they're remembered for a long time. Others are forgotten and lost in the moving ages. Nevertheless, their contribution becomes a legacy to those who have been impacted. Jesus Christ being the foremost of all of that. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ shall last. My mind goes back in time through the through history to a man named Noah. A man who was willing to scoff the ridicule of the day and to follow the commands of God to build a big boat on dry land where rain had never fallen to the saving of his life and those of his family. A monumental time, a time of legacy, of faithfulness. Standing as a hero against the landscape of fallen humanity. I admire men like that. Not following men, but admiring their faithfulness to God. A man named Joseph, because of jealousy of his own brother, sold as a slave to Egypt. Through all the difficulties of life, was there in the end. To minister life to his family. Considering what they. His brothers meant. And did for evil. God meant for good. Another man that I admire. In more recent history. I think of a man. He was a well educated scholar. Who gave his life. To get the Bible into the hands of the common people. He thinking it was a horrific crime. That only after eight or nine years of study. 
and then armed with false principles, which would clean shut out the understanding of the scripture, they, the learned ones, were the only ones allowed to read the scripture. This man, as we know, is William Tyndale. Stands as a monument of God's grace in doing the impossible, defying his opposers, scorning death, and dying at the hands of criminals. I admire men like that. I admire men like that. I admire three men whose commitment to follow Christ was total allegiance. Meant not only they believed in Jesus, but they also practiced the truth of God's word, defying the law that there was only one way to worship. Conrad Greville, Felix Manns, and George Blalrock stood against the religion of the day, sealing their faith in believers' baptism and ultimately sealed their faith by drowning. I admire men like that. Tremendous legacy left behind to inspire any one of us. I'd like to now talk about another man that's given in the Bible, in the Old Testament. I'm turning your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 13. It's a man who made history. And as we read of the account here in 2 Kings chapter 13, we're going to find this man is about ready to die and move off of the face of the earth. This man's name is Elisha. He was a man who asked for a double portion of the spirit of his predecessor. And thus possibly, why if you would study, you would find that he did twice the miracles that his predecessor Elijah did. At the time of a reading here in Second Chapters 13, Elisha is approximately 90 years old. The last we would read about him, if we were to look back in chapter 9, is where he performed his last public act in connection with the anointing of Jehu. And that was 45 years prior to this. So there was 45 years that we do not read about this man, Elisha. But again, here at the end of his life, we pick up on his life, and I think it's very worthwhile considering In this account, we have a dying man, which is Elisha. We also have a young king who had just inherited the kingship and along with the kingship inherited a fairly impossible situation. Joash has found his way to this dying prophet. Probably only knowing about Elisha, the life of this prophet, by the hand-me-down stories of those that went before him. Probably never actually saw firsthand the miracles from a man like this. He knew the miracles. He remembered the stories. A man who, by his estimation, was a true prophet of God. In this, as we read this, just so that we get a little bit of an understanding of the context of what's going on here, we have Joash coming to this dying prophet 
for counsel and wisdom concerning this dilemma that he inherited from the former king. That dilemma, if you were to read, you would find out it's that they're being oppressed by the Syrians. His father was the king. He was a very evil king. The Syrians had come and really took over and really oppressed them. And there was a certain amount of repentance in the life of his father, in the life of the people, that the Syrian army was somewhat defeated, but not completely. And they were still dealing with some of the remnants of the Syrian army, the Syrian people, the Syrian nation, continuing to oppress them. So we have a young king. His name is Joash. He sees this situation that he inherited. And I could just about imagine he is thinking, what do I do? Some of us would say, well, I didn't bring it on. I just inherited it. It's not a big deal to me. We'll somehow live under it, but not Joash. I'm not sure how far he traveled that day, but somehow he found out apparently that this man of God, the prophet Elisha, now 90 years old, even though 45 years it went, and we have no reading that any miracles were done. He went and sought out this dying man. Because he wanted some counsel and wisdom. That's what he wanted. <clears throat> Let's read here in chapter 13 of Second Kings. Starting in verse 14. Now Elisha was fallen sick of a sickness whereof he died. So he never got better. We're not told any more about him. We just know that he died from whatever sickness he had. It was over. So he was sick here. And it was terminal. And Joash, the king of Israel, came down unto him and wept over his face and said, Oh, my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. Now, we're really not told in clear wording what the request was. But as we read on here, we find out apparently whatever he said or whatever wasn't written, we find out what his request was because we read on in verse 15. says, And Elisha said unto him, Take bow and arrows. Took unto him bow and arrows, and he said to the king of Israel, Put thy hand upon the bow, and he put his upon it, and Elisha put his hands upon the king's hands. Now, this is the dying man. This is a man who's probably very, very feeble, terminal illness, 90 years old. He said, Put your hands on the bow, and then he put his hands on top. I can imagine hands that were well, I just, my mother-in-law is 90 years old. I was observing her hands the other day. And uh, they are so thin. They are so thin. There's hardly anything between here anymore. So thin. I'm just, I'm just imagining 90-year-old. My, my mother-in-law is 93 years old. 90-year-old man. A prophet who done many, many miracles. Put his hands on this young man's hand. 17, and he said, open the window eastward, and he opened it. Then Elisha said, shoot, and he shot. 
And he said, the arrow of the Lord's deliverance and the arrow of deliverance from Syria. For thou shalt smite the Syrians in Aphek till thou have consumed them. And he said, take the arrows. And he took them. And he said unto the king of Israel, smite upon the ground. And he smote thrice and stayed. And the man of God was wroth with him and said, Thou should have smitten five or six times. Then hadst thou smitten Syria till thou hadst consumed it. Whereas whereas now thou shalt smite Syria but thrice. And Elisha died and they buried him. And the vans of the Moabites invaded the land at the coming in of the year. And it came to pass as they were burying a man that behold they spied a band of men. They cast the man into the sepulcher of Elisha, and when the man was let down and touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood up on his feet. And that's the last we hear of Elisha. Here's a man, a man who was a prophet in Israel for 45 years. Well, he was 45 years old when supposingly we no longer hear of him as far as a prophet. Here we have a man who has died and yet still speaketh. His life lives on. And so today, I am choosing to title my message, The Useful and Effective Life. The Useful and Effective Life. Today we want to glean a few useful lessons from this portion of Scripture to inspire us. You and I both have an opportunity We're among the living. And the question is, will we also, by the grace of God, let behind a legacy that will inspire others to walk with God? Will we inspire others to a closer walk with God? There's a poem, just four lines. It says this, teach me to live, tis easier to die. Gently and silently to pass away. On earth's long night to close the eye and waken in the glorious realms of day. Basically, this little poem is simply saying, teach me to live, God. Teach me to live. Today is an opportunity. Today is the opportunity. Teach me to live. Simple to die, pass off the scene and no longer be heard of. Teach me to live. So today we're going to consider five things that I trust we can learn from this portion of scripture. The first one we want to consider is that the most useful life must come to a close. The most useful life must come to a close. You know, there are some people that I know of that I say it's going to be a real crying shame to society. When they pass off the sea. Now we know that man is not indispensable. And that God can raise others up. But you probably know of a few people. That have made such an impact. On society. On life. Or people in the past. Who have done things that have impacted. Whole nations. And we say. What a shame. When they pass off of the scene. But you know, even the most useful life must one day come to a close. 
Elisha here had fallen sick of which he had died. And the fact of the matter is, no matter how great our gifts and privileges are, the solemn end is not far out of sight. Teach me to live, for it's far easier to die. So the most useful person is one day going to die, just like everyone else. Lives of great men do remind us of the tremendous possibilities of a single life. Look at Elisha. Amazing. The most useful life must come to a close. Ephesians 5 says, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Now's the time. Now's the opportunity. Now is the privilege. There are many men and women who are gifted with great gifts and privileges that waste them away on personal, selfish desires and ambitions. That's going to go to the grave with them. Going to take it to the grave with them. It will have no lasting impact. In Ezekiel, we could read that God was looking for one man. He's only looking one for one. Not a few of them. He was only looking for one. Not two. Just one who would make up the hedge and stand in the gap. gap. And it says, found none. Not one. The most useful life must come to a close. Ezekiel 22.30, I saw for a man among them that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land that I should not destroy it. But I found none. The question we need to ask ourselves is who is willing to scoff the religion of the day and stand up and be counted for Jesus Christ? Today, humanism... Where I am the center is even creeping into the Christian church. The Christian religion is not about me. It's a slaying me. As we heard earlier this morning, as uh, our brother was speaking there. Yes, Jesus in a manger. But when Jesus stood and he preached that a corn of wheat must fall in the ground and die. If a corn of wheat doesn't fall in the ground and die, it abideth alone. Death. Christian religion is not about me. It's a slaying of me. It's a death to self. It's a denying of one's own life, taking up the cross and following Jesus. We have in Hebrews 12, wherefore seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight and every sin that does so easily beset us. Let us run with patience the race that is before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before me endured the cross, he suffered the shame, set down at the right hand of the throne of God. And so Elisha is a hallmark fame of the past, of one who has won, run the race well. And so the challenge today is, can we lay aside those besetting sins? Those weights that continue to drag us down. The most useful life will one day come to an end. The most useful life one day will come to the end. Tis, this is the time to live because tis easier to die. Now we're not talking about here uh, about being famous or popular or important. We could just think of the lady who came to Jesus with the alabaster box. 
just a little deed of worship, I am sure she never expected that today yet we would still be talking about it. Just a simple deed of worship to the Lord Jesus Christ. One year's worth of wages. No intention of being seen and heard. And what did Jesus say? Verily I say unto you, whosoever or wheresoever this gospel shall be preached in the whole world, there shall also this that this woman hath done be told for a memorial of her. The most useful life must come to a close. And the question we have to ask, are we truly fulfilling our calling here today? Elisha, 90 years old, dying, such a needed man. What sin, what little worldly distraction, what disagreement is going to keep us from burning like a flame? What's going to keep us from making up the hedge? What is going to keep us from standing in the gap? one area that I like to consider a little bit as we consider that there are folks today because of some of the most smallest things it ties their hands and they go to the grave and it's silent I was called the other day and was asked if I would help resolve an issue concerning a brother who's being divisive this brother I would know him for many years. He, I would have considered a very spiritual brother. Um, somebody who has lots of wisdom. Somebody who I looked up to. Somebody of whom I've even sat at his feet. You know, there's a number of these spiritual brothers. They're very gifted brothers. And most of them have something in common. And that is they're never able to submit themselves to other brothers and sisters in Christ. And so here we have this brother. He's being divisive. He has never been able to submit himself or has not been able to submit himself for any long time to any group. But he continues to go around being divisive. And uh, I was called on to come in and try to help see if we can resolve the issue. There are more brothers like this who are very gifted, very talented but because they're never willing and never able to submit themselves to some other brothers, they continue on and their life is ineffective. Some men who would be very effective in life. But such a small, simple thing as being able to submit themselves to some other brothers becomes an impossibility. And it's a crying shame that these men would one day die in their old age, having never learned that and all their wisdom will go with them to the grave. Just one area that we could talk about of many. I think it's interesting what A.W. Tozer says about individual Christianity. He says the individual Christian will find in the communion of a local church the most perfect atmosphere for the fullest development of his spiritual gifts. Now, if that is actually true, I know a lot of men and a lot of women today. Who are never going to find their fullest potential. They're not going to find it. He goes on to say. There also. There also. In the communion of the local church. Will he find the best arena. For the largest exercise. 
of those gifts and powers with which God may have endowed him. Remember, we're talking about living an effective life. Here's just one area. We could talk about many areas. A.W. Tozer goes on to say the religious solitary may have gained on a few points. And he may actually escape some of the irritations of the crowd. But, he says he's a half man. He's a half man. Nevertheless, and worse, he's a half Christian. Every solitary experience, if we would realize its beneficial effects, should be followed immediately by a return to our own company. So we could talk about a lot of things about what would make us effective. I'm talking this morning just here as we think of Elisha and the effective life that he lived. Here's one small area. I see some very, very gifted brothers that have messages they could preach, wisdom that they could give, but they're never willing to submit themselves to the irritation of the crowd. You know, being a brother and a sister in a congregation is not always the nicest thing. But they have so many gifts. But I don't believe they're going to find their fullest potential. Neither will they have the impact and effectiveness in life that they could if they could but submit themselves to a group of believers. So, Elisha, a man of God, the most useful life must come to a close. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Will you get everything out of it you can? It's a crying shame that there are some who could be such an asset to life that will die and take their wisdom with them to the grave. Second thing we want to consider as we consider this passage is that the past achievements of the ages should encourage the young. The past achievements of the ages should encourage the young. Now, when our when when Joash said what he said, we have him coming to the king, and it says he wept over his face. Now, I'm expecting that he embraced this elderly man as he was sitting there or laying there, and as he embraced him. He was weeping and the tears were falling on the face of this elderly man. And he said this. Oh, my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. There's a possibility he was remembering a story of 57 years earlier. The time where uh, Elijah and Elisha crossed over Jordan. And Elijah was taken away with the horses and the chariot. I believe he was remembering that at that time that Elisha had asked for a double portion of Elijah's spirit. Elisha then coming back to the Jordan and taking that mantle with which Elijah had hit the waters, taking that mantle, lifting it up and saying, where is the God of Elijah? And he hits the water and the water parts. I believe simply what he was saying here was remembering a man who was endued with power from God. A man who went through life living a very effective life. And I believe it was coming back to this elderly man, this pale man possibly laying there, terminal illness, 
leaning over top of him, weeping, desiring some of the wisdom that he knew that this elderly man had. The past achievements of the ages should encourage the young. As this young man gazed on the pale face of this godly saint, I believe his heart melted at the thought of the incident. My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. Seeing him in his mind's eye, a man who once had such power with God that he became a terror to royal evildoers. I got to go back to this old man and glean a little wisdom. He's going to die. He's going to die. He's going to go to the grave. I want to hurry back there and glean a little wisdom for my situation. There is hope for a young man who has respect for the wisdom and experience of godly saints. There's hope For young men and young women who admire the wisdom of a saintly man. Young men, we don't know better than the older. We cannot afford to just run over them. Joash was a king. He visited this saintly old man. He recalled his life, the faithful service of an elderly man. He wept as he realized that the very godly man was about to sink into the grave. The past achievements of the aged should encourage the young. You know our society today? They kick at the older people. They have no time for them. You know, it is a shame, though. There's a lot of old men who can say lots of what God has done for them, but where is the man or woman that their life will speak louder than their words? Proverbs 20, verse 6 says, Most men will proclaim everyone his own goodness, but a faithful man who can find. I had a brother who was looking for a speaker for a certain conference. And he was trying to glean a little wisdom from me of who he could invite. And I told him, I think, I think, I think it would be more effective if you would try to get some older men. Men who have lived a good life. Men who are looked up to. Men who have wisdom. He said, there aren't any. There aren't many. There ain't many around. And I began thinking, I'm thinking of all the men, the older men that I know, who were a part of, say, our movement. And I'm saying, where are they today? Where are they today? Scarce. This gentleman said they're scarce. It's scarce to find a man who has a life behind him, 
who has a godly, solid church behind him and has a clear vision for the kingdom. They're few and far between. Where is the godly saint? I remember years ago, right, Brother John, we were hoping for some older men. And we're still looking for those older men. What is happening to them? They're scarce. Where are they? Why are they no longer standing up and being counted? Why do we not have more men for our young men at whose feet they can sit? You know, if there would have never been a Moses, there probably never would have been a Joshua. If there would have never been a Moses, there probably would have never been a Joshua. You can read the life of Joshua early on. It says he was the servant of Moses. And where you see Moses, there you see Joshua. What an opportunity. What an opportunity. If there was never a Moses, there would probably never be a Joshua. If there would have been never a, an Apostle Paul, there probably wouldn't have been a Timothy. Or for that matter, a Titus. And look at what Apostle Paul says of Timothy, Philippians two nineteen and 20. But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy shortly unto you, that I also may be of good comfort when I know your state. For I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state. Paul was a perfect teacher. Timothy, a perfect learner. In our text, we see that Joash the king, his overwhelming emotion, we view his, his, his overwhelming emotion as he observes an in. Influential man slipping away in death. We need older, godly men. Men who have a life behind them. Men who have a family behind them. Men who have a church behind them. Men who have a vision for the kingdom of God. So that our young men can come. Sit at their feet. Where are these men? There may have been no John Wesley if there would not have been a Peter Bowler. Peter Bowler was very influential in John Wesley's life. And John Wesley, by taking counsel from Peter, he found him one day in a Moravian meeting where he says his heart was strangely warmed. There might not be any William Carey if there had not been an Andrew Fuller. William Carey, spurned on by Andrew's evangelistic spirit, William asked the logical question, what about the people beyond our shores? Spurned on with the vision of an older man, Andrew Fuller, asked the logical question, well, what about the heathen beyond our shoreline? And, it says, and, and as it goes, William went to India and his mentor and supporter, Andrew Fuller, stayed back and cheered him on it from home. Where are the older men where the Joashes can go and weep over their face? I need wisdom for my situation.
there'd probably be no Helen Keller if there wouldn't have been an Ann Sullivan who gave her life. Helen Keller, left blind and deaf at the age of two, was a wild, unruly girl, kicking and scratching, all because of a fever early in her life. She rose above her disabilities to become internationally famous and to help thousands of handicapped persons to live a fuller life. But my friends, there would probably be no Helen Keller today. There wouldn't have been an Ann Sullivan poured her life into hers. So, our second lesson, we need older men who will reach into the lives of the younger. We need young men and young ladies who will open up their hearts to the counsel and wisdom of the older. Number three, the third thing we can consider in this passage, confession of need is the way into a life of success. Confession of need is the way into a life of success. So we have the dying prophet. And apparently the dying prophet fully understood the deeper meaning of the king's confession. I don't know if everything is said here. Or if Elisha just knew what was going on. And he knew exactly what this young man Joash the king was getting after. But one thing we see as we read on is that. Joash desired victory over his enemies. Now that was very noble of this young king to go to this elderly gentleman and ask for help. If people were anything like they are today, they tend to be slow to ask for help. I'm one of those. I'm slow to ask for help. I'm going to somehow figure this out. I want to learn to be quicker at confessing my need. I don't know what to do. And the normal um, picture we use is we as men driving along, we're lost and we don't want to admit we're lost. And we keep driving and driving. And our wife says, I think we ought to stop and ask for direction. Well, I think if we get up to this next crossroad, I'll probably know where I'm at. We're very slow at stopping and asking for help. We're slow at admitting that we have a problem. Why is that? Because it takes humility to ask for help, to admit that I have a need. But Joash came to this elderly man wept over his face and said, I need some wisdom for my situation. You know, some cases, it has to get really bad until somebody's willing to confess, I have a need. When I was in, I'm not sure which grade, seventh or eighth, we were going to a one-room parochial school. And there was a lot of years there that I had difficulties with my ears where I would get ear infections. And there was a few times where I actually became what I would consider 100% deaf for a period of time. I couldn't hear anything. One such time I stayed home from school for probably four days. I couldn't hear. Somebody could stand right in front of me and talk to me and I couldn't hear them. I had a lip read. And I was one of those persons that 
wasn't quick at confessing my need. And so finally Friday comes. And my mother says, you need to go to school. I don't think she knew how bad it was. I couldn't hear anything. You need to go to school. So I went to school. I obeyed my mother. Well, guess what? Fridays, they do spelling tests. I knew I'm going to get caught because the teacher gives the spelling words and I can't hear anything. I'm pretty good at lip reading. I'm pretty good at knowing what the normal procedure is. And I got along very well right up to right before lunchtime. Time for spelling. So she's standing a distance away. She's giving the words. And I'm saying, how am I going to get out of this dilemma? Now, I should have went to the teacher right up front and says, I can't hear. But I didn't. We're so slow at confessing our need. And I think that's why we don't get over our problems. And so the teacher gives the spelling words. Now, spelling was not a problem for me. I was, I was a grade A student when it comes to spelling. Not in all my other things. I love spelling. I took it as a challenge. There was one other girl in my grade who was the best speller. And I just wanted to stay neck to neck and get ahead of her in our spelling bees and those kind of things. And so the teacher was given the words and I'm saying, how do I get out of this dilemma? And so I decided, you know, I don't need a cheat. I don't need to see how to spell the word. But if I could just lean over the shoulder of the girl in front of me and see the word she wrote, right? So that's what I did. I on purpose did not look close at the word. I didn't need a spelling wasn't a problem. I didn't need to uh, figure out how to spell the word. Came natural. And so we got through and I ended up missing about two or three words. So I said to the teach, uh, teacher, I lip read. She said, anybody miss any words? And I put up my hand and she came. And I'm not sure how it all went, but she ended up standing right in front of my desk, right there in front of me, giving the words. I couldn't even hear them. I couldn't get them. And that's when she found out what was going on. Why are we so slow admitting we need help? Here's Joash the king. He inherited a mess. The Syrian army was oppressing him. He went the whole way to this dying prophet. He said, here I might be able to find some help. And he confessed, I need help. How am I going to get ahead of this Syrian army? We're so slow at asking for help. James 4.2 says, You lust, have not, you kill, and desire to have, and cannot obtain. You fight in war, yet ha- ye have not, because why? You ask not. What it's saying here is, you want what you do not have. How do you go about to get it? By scheming and killing. You're jealous of what others have. How do you go about to get it? By fighting and quarreling. What should we be doing about it? Simply asking. I've got a need. I've got a mess. I've got a sin in my life I can't overcome. We've got problems in our marriage that we just can't get on top of. i got issues between me and my children Relational issues I don't know what to do with. I got children who are rebelling. And I don't know what to do about it. And there we sit. And there we sit. 
And there we sit. And surely, somewhere, there's some godly man and woman who we can go to and say, I have a need. I implore you according to your wisdom. Could you help me in this situation? So the third thing we consider is confession of need is the way to a life of success. So whether it's husband and wife, whether it's interpersonal relationships in the home, or whether it's even churches that aren't doing well, we sit and we try to resolve the issues totally on our own. And I believe God is looking for humility when we'll say, this is who I am. I need help. <clears throat> we have a young king going to this very old prophet. And the prophet said, take a bow and arrow. And this older gentleman, this 90-year-old man, put his weak and I imagine trembling hands on the hands of this young king. But it was a hand not to be despised. It was a hand not to be despised by the young and the strong who desired victory in the name of the Lord. The hand of the man of God was truly a helping hand. Confession. It's the way to a life of success. Number four. It is dishonoring to God to be satisfied with partial success. It is dishonoring to God to be satisfied with partial success. Verse 18 and 19. It says the man of God was wroth and said. Thou should have smitten five or six times. What an opportunity the king had. An opportunity the king had when he was assured that every time he smote the ground with an arrow, it would be deliverance. Why did he stop at three? He got exactly according to his faith. Look over in verse 25. Second Kings thirteen twenty-five and Jehoash the son of Jehoahaz, and I'm not sure why it uses Jehoash there. It's talking about the same king. See that later in this verse. And Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, took again out of the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Haziel, the cities, which he had taken out of the hand of Jehoahaz, his father, by war. Three times did Joash beat him and recover the cities of Israel. Three times. But he needed five or six times. He didn't go the whole way. It was great. But I'm telling you, it was a partial victory. Why did he stop short of all that God was prepared to do for him? Was it simply pity for the enemy or self-satisfying confidence that three victories would be quite enough to serve the purpose? But you know, we got to ask the same question. Why do we stop short? Of the fullness of the blessing. When we might be more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. Why do we stop short? Are there not many like Joash. That are perfectly content. With just as much of the grace and power of Christ in their lives. As to enable them to get along with some honor and credit to themselves. 
It's dishonoring to God to be satisfied with partial success. Children of Israel went into the promised land. They were supposed to drive out all the peoples of the land. And as you read through the book of Judges there, you soon found out, find out that they didn't. They were satisfied with partial success and God said, all right, there are going to be thorns in your side. They were satisfied with partial success. But let's not, we, the children of God, be satisfied with partial success. Look at this verse, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. That's God's goal. That should be our goal also. All things, not some things. Not some things, not most of the things, not many of the things. Am I satisfied with three successes when five or six would actually do it? Well, we might say, well, how unfair. I mean, did this king really understand that he should have took that arrow and hit the ground five or six times rather than three? You know, I said, I I had to think about that. And I thought of the our our own enthusiasm, our own desire, our own passion for the Lord Jesus Christ. It can be very, um, it can be illustrated by um, when we clap our hands. You know, if you're really excited about something and you really are behind whatever is happening, you will clap. I mean, if somebody has a birthday and we clap for them and it's someone pretty special, we'll clap and you hardly get done clapping. If it's somebody, or we're not real ambitious, or we're not really involved, or we're really not overly excited, you know, we just do a little bit of clapping. I think this young man, if he would have knew that this elderly man, he has just told him to hit the ground and every strike will be victory over his enemy. I think he should have hit it and he should have hit it again and he should have kept on hitting it. Where's the enthusiasm? The word enthusiasm comes from the word entheos. Entheos. And the meaning of entheos is God within. God within. Enthusiasm. If we truly have God within, we'll have enthusiasm. And we'll go at it with everything we got. But too many of us kind of go through life. You know, we get up in the morning, we have our devotions. And then we have a little bit of prayer time. Then we hurry off to our work. And then we come home. And we know there's situations that need attention in our home. And, and we, we kind of dig at them a little bit. And then we go on through life. Enthusiasm. Everything. Don't just strike three times. Strike five or six. There's a European artist. He once drew a very powerful cartoon. And in the first panel, he showed a number of school-aged children. They're going into a street-level subway station, subway, to ride the subway. And as they're going, they're cheering, they're laughing, they're throwing their hats in the air. You know, they're all excited about life. The next picture was some middle-aged folks coming off of the subway. And they looked like zombies. Now this picture had no caption, no, no words to it. But it was powerful. It was powerful message. What happened from the time those little children grew up until they were middle aged? What happened to the enthusiasm? 
Everybody who viewed that picture said, what happened? Where are we? Men and women of God and Theos, God within, excited. And when the prophet said, strike three, I mean, prophet said, strike, not just, he didn't just do three to five, he should have done five or six. Life lived at full throttle, overcoming every sin, overcoming every weight that does so easily beset us, running the race with patience. Paul said, 1 Corinthians 9.26, I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air. And Theos. It is dishonoring to God to be satisfied with partial success. So whether you or I read our Bible, whether we pray, whether we are striving for victory over a particular sin, whether we work or we play, Colossians 3.23 says, And whatsoever ye do, do it heartily. Enthusiasm. And Theos. God within. Do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. Our last and fifth point. God can make his servants a blessing even when dead. And we see that here with Elisha. He died. They buried him. And here come the Moabites invading the land. Middle of a funeral. And he said, what do we do? I mean, it was important that people got good burials under the Jewish culture. And so it wasn't good enough just to throw this man into the fence row and try to run and get to safety. Somehow, they spied Elisha's grave. May have just had a stone over top of it. I don't know. They threw this man in. And the, when the, young, the dead man hit Elisha's bones, stood up. And walked away. Amazing. The nameless man. Buried in a hurry. Was born anew in the grave of the old prophet. He being dead. Yet speaketh. That was said of Abel. The posthumous. The posthumous influence of a holy man of God. Is in the hands of God. Proverbs 10, 7 says, the memory of the just is blessed, but the name of the wicked shall rot. Psalms one twelve six says, surely he shall not be moved forever. The righteous shall be in everlasting remembrance. Though dead, he yet speaketh. 2 Timothy 1, 5, when I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwell first in thy grandmother Lois and thy mother Eunice, I'm persuaded that in thee also. Now again, this is not about making a name for oneself. This is about living life so close to God that he can use my life and your life as an inspiration even when we die. One day, quite a few years ago, there was a young man, one winter evening, sitting at his desk, and he had such a passion, such a passion 
to do the will of God and to be effective for his kingdom. And as he sat there, these words of a poem came to him, or actually words came to him that he put into poem form. And as he wrote out this poem, he was giving the longing of his heart. He sat there, and as he as he considered the words that he had just wrote, he wept over them. He wept over them. Because there was such a longing in his heart and soul to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Two years after he wrote this poem, he met his friend, Mr. Mason. And Mr. Mason was someone who liked to publish songs. And and so when he met Mr. Palmer, he said, Mr. Palmer, do you have any poems that I could put to music? And well, Mr. Palmer thought for a little bit and he thought, you know what? I remember that one. I remember that one. So he kind of hesitatingly opened up the little book that he carried where he wrote all his scribblings. And he just showed it to Mr. Mason and said, "Uh, here's a poem. And Mr. Mason took one look at that. And he hurried off into a side room and he soon came up with a tune. Today, we're still inspired by that song. My faith looks up to thee, thou Lamb of Calvary. So it was right after Mr. Mason put the tune to the poem. It was two days afterwards that he met Mr. Palmer on the street. And he said to Mr. Palmer, Mr. Palmer, you may live many years and do many good things, but I think you will be best known to be the posterity or the posterity. You'll be best known for the posterity of being the author of. My faith looks up to thee. Today, we sing that song. If you look in your book, you will find that song, and you will see those two names, Mr. Palmer and Mr. Mason. Though dead, he yet speaketh. Will I live, and will you live such a life, that though you are dead, your life will yet speak? As I was thinking of What will people say of me after I am gone? I thought of someone that I knew only a little bit. That was my grandfather. He died when I was five, six years old. I have one main memory of my grandfather. Just one main memory. That memory is that I'm at the one side of our dairy barn. My grandfather's at the other side. And he's got his little pliers and he's threatening to pull our teeth. Now to a five or six year old, that's scary. He was the kind of man, well, he lived on our property. There was a house trailer on our property, so he was around all the time. My older brothers, who were as much as ten years older than I, tell stories that I know nothing of. To get away from grandfather, they used to run the whole way out to the end of the lane, two-tenths of a mile, to get away from grandfather. So as it went, we didn't appreciate our grandfather. We didn't enjoy our grandfather. I could just remember that uh, when we wanted to go outside and it was dark, we were scared. What if grandfather's outside, but grandfather smoked? And so we would open the door just a crack and look for that little red spot on the end of the cigarette 
whether he's out on the porch smoking or if he's in the house. If he wasn't out on the porch, we felt safe to go do what we needed to do. If we saw that little red light, we didn't dare to go outside. Now, I am sure that fear was magnified tremendously. But I was about five or six years old when he passed away. He had a, I think I had a heart attack or something. Um, I remember the ambulance coming late in the day and taking him off. I uh, heard nothing till the next morning. I can remember exactly where I was standing. I was changing my clothes right at the breakfast table, five, six years old. And my mom said, grandfather passed away. And my response, oh, good. My mom said, don't you talk like that. What are people going to remember of you? Though dead, yet speaketh. Though dead, yet speaketh. God is looking for men and women, godly men and women, men and women who live life under the power and anointing of God, living a useful life, an effective life that will help another on their journey of life. It's going to take brokenness and humility, broken up lives who are willing to confess, I have a need. Folks who are not satisfied with partial success, but with a zeal and passion, will throw all their life into it by the power of God, so that even after they are dead and gone, their life continues to inspire others on in Christ. A broken life lived by the power of Christ will be the life, though it's dead. Still speaketh. So just a few inspirations from the life of Elisha, an older man who is dying. I imagine a pale man. I imagine a feeble man. I imagine a man that was trembling. That when the young man, Joash, put his hands on the bow and this elderly man put his hands on the bow. I imagine it was like this. But he wanted counsel. For something he inherited. A situation that was beyond his control. And yet. He only went at it. With partial success. And and theos. Enthusiasm. God within. May God raise us up. So that our old men. our, Our young men. Have old men to go to. Men who have lived lives, who their personal walk with God is vibrant. Their homes are godly. They have a godly church. And they have a vision and a passion for the kingdom of God. Ninety years old. Where would I go? Choose out that prophet, ninety-year-old prophet, and just go and get him to put his hands, his trembling hands, On my hands would be a value I would give any price for. Let's close our eyes for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, this morning again as we consider your word and these Old Testament accounts that can be so inspirational. I want to thank you for the life of Elisha. And though he is dead, he yet speaketh. I want to thank you for a young man, Joash, that was willing to leave his area. Go seek out this old prophet. 
Allow him to put his trembling hands on his. Father, I pray that each one of us here could be humble enough to confess, I have a need. And though we may one day die, I pray we would live life so connected, vitally connected to Jesus Christ, that though we're dead, our life yet speaketh. I pray that you would not only inspire us, but that you would give us wisdom and understanding to know those areas of our life that are a hindrance. And that we would be willing to confess, maybe not even public, but to go to somebody and say, I have a need. Though he be dead, yet speaketh. Lord, help us. Bless this congregation. And minister to each one of us according to our need. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.